Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. They were the heroes from the future. Teenagers protecting the universe from those that would sow the seeds of chaos. Each had unique powers and abilities. And though they often had their differences, they came together to save the day as the Legion of Superheroes. Now you can be a part of their adventures and learn the history of the future in the Legion Clubhouse. This week on the Legion Clubhouse, it's the return of Pulsar! But not the Pulsar you might be expecting. Karate Kid number 9, The Black Belt Contract. Published July-August 1977. Written by David Michelini as Barry Jameson. With art by Rick Estrada. Synopsis. Karate Kid must return to the future to save Projecta's life. We're jumping into the pages of Karate Kid number 9 in this episode, Matthew. Mm-hmm. That's true. A, been a couple of issues since we looked at the Karate Kid. How about you fill us in on what was going on in the between times? Sure. We covered issue six in a previous issue. Issue seven of the Karate Kid featured Karate Kid's desperate battle against the Gyro Master and his terrible gyroscopes. Uh, Wait, isn't there a about... villain? Isn't there a villain in the DC universe called the Top? Like a Flash there villain is. called the Top? So how is there... the gyroscope man different from the Top? Well, that's an interesting point. The Gyroscope Master, in fact, is the top, or rather was written as the top. But David Michelini, who's writing this under the alias of Barry Jameson, didn't realize the top was dead. So they just reskinned him (laughs) as the Gyro Master. (laughs) So I'm curious, when do we... I mean, Mark Wade is very, very knowledgeable about the history of all of the characters in the DC Universe. And I would have thought at one time, back in the... Uh, 90s, early 90s, when he was working for DC, doing The Flash and all of that stuff, and even building up to uh, 52, that they kind of considered him the de facto historian. Mm -hmm. When did, was there someone before him? I mean, obviously right now, someone has to be told, man, uh, the top's uh, dead. You should have uh, checked. At what point do we have that checks and balance system? I know editorial is supposed to do that, and group editors are supposed to do that. But why... Why did this happen? Well, at, in this era, your DC uh, guru would have been Bob Rosakis, uh, the answer man, as he's known. You'll see occasionally mm-hmm. in issues of the Legion, you'll see Bob's thing. Bob Rosakis and Nelson Bridwell, who uh, we've you know got some experience with as well, were known heavily. But 
I think what happened with the top was he died in the pages of Flash in and around this era. I don't remember exactly when, but I think it may be one of those things where the story was written while the top was alive, and ah. by the time Jameson's script was ready, Carrie Bates had killed the top in the pages yeah. of the Flash. And again, for those people that kind of hate editorial, and we <laughs> see a lot of hate against editorial over the years, but this is what editorial is supposed to do. This is one of the things that editorial groups sit around and they keep track of what's going on in the Superman group, in the Batman group, in the Flash group, or whatever that may be going on, whatever their big uh, editorial staff are. And every once in a while, publishers, whether it be Marvel or, or DC or one of the other big publishers uh, that have a lot of comics that are interconnected, they will sit down and have a group planning session well, they were say, OK, what are we going to do from now until the next year or the next six months or whatever's our big event? And let's make sure we got all our ducks in the row so that we don't have the flash killing the top while someone of our writers is actually writing a top story. Uh, and so for those of you that poo poo editorial, that's one of the reasons why they exist is to make sure that there's not conflicting messages or conflicting moments that go into major stories and to make sure that everyone's continuity is in order. Sure, but I mean, you know, this last weekend I reviewed Superman Red, Superman Blue number one, which was created by all the Superman creative teams, and it was just a mishmash of nonsense. So, I mean, there's an upside to continuity, and then there's the question of maybe, you know, David Michelinie wants to write this cool story. Oh, wait, we can't use this guy, so I'll kind of create a different guy. I'm really sort of fine with that Wild West style occasionally because – Honestly, that's where the Legion comes from. That's where a lot of the things that we see in comics that have stuck, like Deadpool, like the X-Men, all of that has just come out of a somebody went, meh. You know, Wolverine's mask was not the mask that we currently know, the Batman-style cowl with the big pointy ears. Oh, yeah, it was Timberwolf's mask. Yes, until until Timberwolf came Bill along. Kane drew it wrong on the first issue of Giant Size X-Men. And since Kane did it and they're like, oh, that looks better, they're like, okay, we're just going to change it on the interiors. And I'm like, see, that worked. That's a better mask. It doesn't have cute little whiskers. Oh, sure. So, you, know. you can always iterate. You can always change. I'm just saying that in this particular instance, and, and what I'm mm -hmm. explaining is this is why we have editorial groups and why there are big editorial meetings where people, uh, you know, mastermind the next year at a publisher and why it's yeah. more pre prevalent now than it was 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Yeah, they didn't do that in 77. Yeah. So we do get so, introduced to a character called Pulsar. Did we get through all the stuff that was going on uh, in this? Pulsar actually first appears in issue eight, which we're not covering because, again, I don't consider every solo Karate Kid story to be a Legion story. And uh, also, they're not good. Uh, but that issue first had the battle with Karate Kid and Pulsar. And ended with him coming home to find Princess Projectra in his bedroom. Dun, dun, dun. That's where we pick up now with Karate Kid number nine. Yeah. So we are introduced to Pulsar, who, quite frankly, especially in the first um, first page splash, mm -hmm. looks a lot like a He-Man character. I mean, just does. in the way that he's proportioned, the crazy costume, the, you know, just the whole vibe that he gives off just feels like he's ready to be dipped in some glue and flocked and set on the shelf as Merman or Swamp Man or whatever that they want to call him, because this is this is action figure central right here. And, you know, part of that is the combination of Staten and Estrada. Together, they make for some really cartoony art. 
I don't necessarily hate it, but I agree with you. I also find it interesting that he's meeting with a man who looks like the question. Blue suit, orange tie, orange shirt. I mean, literally, this is the Charlton Comics question. As he steps forward out of the shadows, you can't even see his face. I'm like, are they doing this on purpose? I, I Why is He-Man so. I mean, fighting the question on the docks? He is, he is, he is a mob man. Mob man nice. with a button that can control Pulsar and make him do whatever he wants. Meanwhile, Karate Kid gets caught making out with another girl when uh, his uh, supposed real girlfriend walks in the room. His fiance. I, I believe he's hugging. He's not making out. I don't know. It looks I... like a pretty close embrace. If you ask me, I know if I walked in and caught my significant other in an embrace like that, I'd be pretty irate as well. Maybe even start a cat fight, uh, which don't is start. what uh, starting to go on here. Almost, yes. But he's trying to explain it. Iris Jacobs uh, actually does have a thing for Karate Kid and doesn't have any business messing with uh, Princess Projectra, who really would slap her down. But yeah, uh, it's it's I'm upset by this plot point. Why? I mean, it's it, very this is, retrograde, this is a, even for 1977. This was a plot point that was set up in issue one. I mean, the minute that uh, she meets Karate Kid in the first issue, she's like, oh, he's so dreamy. I'm going to make him mine. And yeah, so this, like you know, this was set up now, unless Karate Kid had no intention of ever going back to the future, unless Karate Kid never thought that uh, his girlfriend would come to the past to see what he was doing unless he never suspected that perhaps her father was spying on him the entire time, then I don't know. Uh, I don't know why this was not something telegraphed nine, eight issues ago. It's not spying. Uh, we haven't learned the reason why, but we did find, we do find out in this issue that the monitor globe in his apartment, the person on the other end is Projector's father, King Voxva of Arando. Uh, but yes, uh, the cat fight actually gets interrupted, thankfully, because it's incredibly retrograde and inappropriate by Pulsar trying to kill Karate Kid. So, you know, fighty fighty kicks in. And then we have another moment that's kind of sexist where he, he just leaps out and tells Projector to stay here and take care of herself. And I'm like, Val, your girlfriend is five times more powerful than you. And unlike you, she's wearing her flight ring. Yeah, but he's got the power of karate. Uh-huh. And I've got the power of Unagi. But that doesn't mean that I'm more powerful than my girlfriend who has superpowers and actual flight ability. But he knows the 70s. She's just arrived here. Still still a bad place. Also, this is the 1970s. He's a man, Matthew. And she's a woman. He's a complicated man. Oh, no one understands. My goodness, there is so much jive talking going on in in this uh, in this issue. Yep. Pulsar is an African American character in the 70s. Which is and interesting he... because you know jive talk actually started in like 1938 with Cab Calloway, right? And then mm -hmm. it had its peak in the 1940s, but then resurrected in the 1970s. And the only reason I, why I can think that maybe some of that jive talk got resurrected is because in that short time period, and even though, you know, jive had still been around, um, mm -hmm. I can't help but wonder if a lot of it didn't come back because of television and radio, where uh, television in the early days 
couldn't help but um, rerun old movies and maybe radio stations were running older music or alternative music maybe at the day uh, mm-hmm. that you wouldn't normally hear in in any other mainstream media. And maybe that's why it made a comeback. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. In 1953, there was a book published about Jive Talk, but still that's 20 plus years before we hit mm-hmm. the main 70s. That's an interesting point. I mean, I don't know if it's a cyclical thing or not, but I mean, if you get into the 70s, it became almost a badge of honor to have that character in, you know, a comic book or in a sitcom, the character who did have that, you know, that kind of street jive turkey lingo. Mm -hmm. You see it, you see it with uh, Venus Flytrap in WKRP in Cincinnati. You see it in several characters in Good Times. And it's, it's one of those things that at the time, really almost surprisingly it's always played as almost always played as a positive character yeah and i, I really we, appreciate that i know we talk about uh jive and use that term i don't know if that is the actual term that was still used in the 70s but most people associate the slang of the 70s with jive and maybe because it was prevalent in the black community and started with the black community in the in the 40s or in, in the mm-hmm. 30s and 40s so i don't know if that's why that um that still continues. It's possible. I mean, and if you look at some of the, the parlance in this issue, you actually see Pulsar going back and forth from Jive Turkey, kick him in the next county you dig, to your standard comic book uh, genius villain talk. And I'm wondering if maybe he's not putting on a facade because that's one of the things that black lightning did in 77 as well to try and maintain yes. a secret identity. The interesting was thing not is not just wear a mask and fake hair, but also take on an entirely different vernacular. Right. And that's the one thing that we don't find out here. And maybe it, I don't know if it was uh, talked about in a previous issue. We kind of learn a little bit about Pulsar's backstory in how he uh, was knocked out and they put this suit on him that has a, an electroshock in there that can give him a heart attack. Um, but we don't know what his background background is, you know, whether he is someone like Black Lightning, who is well educated and went to the Olympics and all of those kinds of things, or if he's portrayed as just a general street criminal. Uh, so that that's the part that's a little bit different. Now, we do know that he's the criminal with a heart of gold, right, because he does want to protect his sister from everything. Mm-hmm. And of course, if he doesn't do it, the uh, the 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 mobster guy is going to kill his sister. Um, Egghead man is what I'm going to call him. And that's why he goes out and agrees to try and kill Karate Kid. Let me. Yeah, his name is not Egghead Man, but well, I'm going he to also is up. drawn very much as an egghead. And that's another yeah. one. If you look at that page, that is super cartoony. Well, a lot of what we see. So when we see Karate Kid, when we see Princess Projector, when we see his apartment, that's pretty much straight up kind of. Um, art that we would normally associate with this time period, but Mm -hmm. perhaps tying into the reason why I think that Pulsar looks like a He-Man character is any time that Pulsar is on the page, especially when he's dealing with uh, the the boss guy and his his sister, everything takes on a more cartoony feel to it. And I don't know if it's because of uh, the artist that we have in in this uh, Rick Estrada's art, because normally he does really great at portraying, you know, the karate moves and the other uh, uh, action poses that we've talked about before. So I'm just mm-hmm. very surprised that all of a sudden we get into some very cartoony territory in this is- issue. 
It's the inking of Joe Staten. Joe Staten has a very cartoony style. If you look at his work on E-Man, his work on uh, New Guardians in the 80s and 90s, Joe Staten is a very cartoony artist. Mm-hmm. And I feel like certain pages look like they are, have more Staten than they do Estrada. Mm. So, and it may be one of those things where, you know, you do breakdowns or you do your pencils as loose as you want. And sometimes it looks like Estrada definitely did some tight pencils and they were inked pretty solid, but there are moments where, yep, this is a Joe Staten comic. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So eventually Karate Kid and Pulsar both get thrown into a giant human sized microwave because apparently every restaurant has these these days so that you can so that you can flash fry a cow and serve it to your customers. Microwaves, which uh, we're explained, uh, cook things from within using sound waves. Oh, man, I remember when my parents got the first microwave. It would have probably been. Probably 1980 ish, 1981, 82, somewhere around there. Early 80s is what I remember around the same time we got our first VCR. Um, And I remember it was always one of those things where it's like, don't stand too close to the microwave. Those those energons are going to come out and, and cook you from the inside. It's great for making coffee, but don't stand too close, kids. And uh, yeah, so it's weird to see a comic book actually inject some some science into this issue. Sort of science. I mean, a giant room sized. First of all, the microwave is filled with steel hooks. And I don't know if you've ever put aluminum foil in the microwave. Yeah, like I know steel, I have. Though. That's not steel, though. That's aluminum. Oh, that's steel. Yeah. So, so you know, what's what's the inside of your microwave coated with? Not plastic. Uh, mine is actually mm. plastic. It's mm, all wow. plastic. I have a plastic. So, yeah, microwave. no, but I'm glad that they're putting in some science into this. Uh, and we do get a little bit of a backstory on the origin of Pulsar in here as well. Uh, eventually, powered by his heart. Yeah. Eventually, he escapes. They take down Mr. Big. They save the day, and finally Karate Kid is able to go back to his apartment, turn on his sphere of death, and we discover that the person he's been communicating with this entire time is his future father-in-law. And now they must go back to the future. Yeah, because apparently the kingdom is in trouble, and instead of asking his daughter or the Legion members who are there in the uh, in the 31st century for help, right. uh, he wants to go and ask for the man who has got the plan, Mr. Karate Kid. Yeah, I part of the I mean, I don't want to seem like I'm the guy who's saying we should not cover Karate Kid because it sucks. But part of the problem, you're the one who said we should cover Karate Kid. Well, part of the problem with the Karate Kid series is that it has nothing to do with anything. And part of the problem is that it's really not very good. Well, I Um, think the reason why I mean, so again, when we look at this Venn diagram of why Karate Kid should have worked in this time period. And maybe it did. I don't know what the sales were on this particular series. But remember, we had this, this of uh, the first circle is Legion of Superheroes at right. an all time high right here. We also have the next circle, Karate Kid, new character. And then we have the, you know, he's got an attitude. He's really cool with his big Elvis costume on. And then we have the third circle in our Venn diagram was the rise of uh, karate and martial arts comics. We've got Chang Chi. We've got uh, uh, what's what, we got Iron Fist. We've got uh, who else? Uh, Richard Dragon, Dragon, the Kung Fu fighter. Yeah, we have all those things that are starting to make their rise. So when we look at the overlap between those, there is an area that says this comic should do well. 
Now, the problem is they should have had the creator of Karate Kid writing this series, but instead he went to go do something else at another company. Well, you know, I, I feel like part of the problem is the insistence on setting this 30th century character in the 20th century. Because mm-hmm. there's never really, I mean, they're starting to build, and it feels like they're starting to reverse engineer a justification for why it's happening with the Voxiv stuff that we're starting to see. But it also feels kind of unmotivated. And I don't know. I mean, nothing about this issue particularly stands out as remarkable. Even, you know, the points where you're like, ooh, there's a Legionnaire, and now mm-hmm. he's going to go back to the future. It's just kind of like, well, that was a comic that happened. It was. A, mm-hmm. Is this the last issue of Karate Kid? No, Karate Kid goes 15 issues. Okay. I think we're going to cover at least two more uh, before it gets canceled. But I don't think we're going to cover the last issue. Okay. And interestingly, um, usually... You know, we will make the joke about how no one ever heard of Pulsar again. <laughs> Pulsar. We never hear from Pulsar again, ever. We actually do oh, hear God from Pulsar it. again. About six years after this issue comes out, an issue of Batman, the Brave and the Bold nice. wraps up all the plot lines from this series, including killing Pulsar for literally no reason. Nice. All right, Matthew, yeah. here is a slang terms of the 70s quiz for you. All right. Some of these will be pretty easy. Some of them may be a little bit more difficult. This is on a website called inthe70s.com. In the 70s. So the word that I'm looking at here is skinny. Now, you can ask me to give use it in a sentence, or um, but I need the definition of skinny. In a 70s slang context? Yes. Oh, can you use it in a sentence? Let me give you the skinny on the deal. Oh, the truth. Okay. Uh, can you dig it? Are you fully recognizing the reality of this situation? Do you understand it? Are you feeling it? Psych. Uh, like to mess with someone's head to psych them out? Yes, to trick someone. Okay. Uh, don't be such a spaz. Where spaz, I think, is the, the key word here. I believe spaz is an ableist and pejorative term. Uh, an ableist? No. No, no, they're not uh, making uh, fun uh, of people with like eye disorders or something. No, no, no. They're making fun a, of people who a, are accident a prone, or a nerd, accident prone, klutzy or just stupid. OK, far out. Far out. Something that's far out is good in a really, really awesome way. Yeah. So like, we would say it, that it was cool. What is yes. lay a gasser? I'm sorry, what? Lay a gasser. Uh, I'm going to say break wind. Yes. Uh, let's see. Your mama. That is uh, an attack phrase. Okay. Where someone says, you're an idiot. And I'm like, your mama. Book or booking? Um, to put someone in jail? No. To get a date with someone? To run quickly. Oh. We got to book oh, it. Oh, so we're going to book it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Catch you on the flip side. I will see you later, friend. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm going to translate that into Midwestern for you. Feel the funk. Enjoy this music. Yep. Uh, keep on trucking. Do the things that you must do and enjoy your life. Right on. That is correct, sir. Uh, for sure. The, the also four. correct, sir. Yes. Uh, for sure or for real. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? 
Some of these, I'm like, are these really 70s terms? They must be late 70s. Like, Hard to say. They had Grody to the Max on here, which to me is an 80s term, not a 70s term. Well, the Valley Girl culture actually does start around uh, 77, 78. The way also, I the term bitchin', mm-hmm. which is awesome or very cool, I would say is like a 50s or 60s slang. Um, what about Bogart? I, I remember it with the Valley Girl stuff. What about Bogart? Uh, to take, don't Bogart that <clears throat> soda. Yeah. Brick house. <laughs> there was a whole song about someone who was built like a brick house. Yes. She's mighty, mighty and letting it all hang out. Yes. Uh, burn. Uh, that means that you've just failed. Burn. Yeah. Uh, don't be a bunny. Mm, I got nothing on that one. Don't be stupid. Oh, well, that makes sense. Dude. Which I, I use a lot. Yeah, I do too. Dude is a general term of uh, address. Yeah, a guy or a girl. Hey, dudes. Hey, dude. Uh, dynamite. <laughs> that is uh, an exclamation popularized by Jimmy J.J. Walker in the character of James Evans Jr. And what does it mean? Uh, it means, hey, this is awesome. Let's see. Uh, let's find another one. Freak out. Le chic. Say freak. Uh, freak out is to uh, lose control or f- like, I would say flip out probably. Yeah, when you're doing psychedelic drugs, you have a freak out. Yeah, like in the middle of Willy Wonka. Funkadelic. Funkadelic? That's George Clinton's band. Mm-hmm. What does it mean, though, for slang? Um, I'm going to go with a combination of funky and psychedelic. Cool. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Boy, there's a whole list here. Let's jump down here into the peas. <laughs> um, maybe not. Oh, well, there's you pig, of course. Television what is pig? Pig? Yeah. A police officer? Yes. Uh, peep. Uh, that's a, a terrible sugary treat available no, around no, Easter. No, 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 no. To look at or see? There you go. Uh, Matthew, I think you probably would have done okay in the 70s. Well, I was born in the 70s. Uh, let's and see. I watched a lot of good times. There you go. <laughs> yep, so there you go. You can go over to the uh, In the 70s website, and they've got a whole bunch of slang going nice. on right there. Overall, though, I would kind of agree with you, Matthew, this issue, not the best. Yeah, very condescending karate kid, kind of a, a an anticlimactic reveal of one of the big mystery moments, a giant microwave filled with steel. It's just If you enjoy the show, we would appreciate your support. You can find out more and become a Legion Clubhouse member at patreon.com slash major spoilers. So there's an interesting bit of information that I noticed while I was reading this particular comic. Now, I haven't done a lot of research. It was very apparent, though, in this particular issue, and that is the huge number of ads that were in this issue. And I went back and counted. uh, This issue has 16 pages of ads, 13 Mm -hmm. if you don't count the inside front and back covers and the back cover of the ad. So, you know, take the inside front, inside back, and the back cover, remove those. You end up with 13 uh, pages of ads for a total of 17 pages of story. So Mm -hmm. if you look at 16 versus 17, that's roughly 50-50 
in terms of ads versus story. Now, I know a lot of people might be saying, man, that is a lot. But you have to remember when you're watching uh, television shows, 30 minute uh, sitcoms these days used to be they would run right around 27 minutes. Now they're back down to 24 minutes. And I think right right around now they're between 21 and 24 minutes for mm-hmm. a 30 minute show. So that means like almost a third of that time that you're watching television if you're on cable or however you're watching your television, commercial television, a third of that is going to be ads. 50-50, though, does seem like a lot unless you take into account that this issue is still only 35 cents. And that's something that a lot of people, again, I don't think realize that part of the reason why these prices were be able, were able to be kept so low mm-hmm. is because of the ads. The ads are paying for the cost of the comic. And sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, as they made the switch from, you know, newspaper print to the slick and glossy paper that we have today, the number of ads inside the comic went down, which meant that if the publisher wanted that slick, glossy paper, they would have to eat that cost themselves. Or as what happens with most businesses, they pass that cost to the customer and we start to see the price of a comic rise. Now, I don't mind ads. 50-50 did seem a little much in this particular issue. Uh, But, you know, if you've got a fourth of a quarter of your comic book is ads and they're good ads. I'm not talking about just the got milk ads that usually run in these these magazines. Right. Uh, But you could probably knock off a buck, buck fifty two dollars on the cover of today's comics and get some of those comics back down to a buck fifty an issue or two ninety nine an issue. And I think you have to ask yourself. Who's going to advertise in comics? Well, uh, I think there's a lot of. So, first of all, merchandising. So there could be house ads, which uh, can also cover the cost. So you could advertise other uh, comic book properties or you could advertise merchandise, which comes out of another branch of the company's budget. Mm -hmm. Video games and toys, I think, would still be big things that you could advertise in uh, comics today. Now, maybe not the you know, the x-ray specs and the learn karate and don't get beat up on the beach kind of ads. But I think, you know, the got milk ads, the video game ads, the other things could be a way of bringing some of those costs down if they were willing to increase uh, the the um, the ad count in a comic book. See, I don't know. I think part of the reason that ads have disappeared from comics is not just a question of we don't want to put ads in our comics and break up the stories because you'll still see actual advertisements in some books. You'll see a lot of house ads. You'll see a lot of, you know, uh, public service announcements. I know DC has recently been uh, putting a public service announcement about social distancing in every issue. But I think part of it comes down to a question of the revenue sources and streams that we saw in the seventies just aren't there anymore. I I I don't know if you could get the people who, I really think like, they are. If you go and look at like Mademoiselle, go look at Vanity Fair, go pick up one of the girl magazines that your daughter reads if she reads girl magazines. And you're going to find that those there's actually more ads than content in those things. And they sell but are for, they making money? I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to say that they probably are or else they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't do it as much anymore. Now, the flip side could be said that you could look at newspapers and newspaper advertising has dropped dramatically over the last 20 years because of internet ads and and how the internet has killed local papers. And you could say, well, that wouldn't work in comic books, but I have a feeling it might. The problem would be that the comic book publisher is, is probably expecting 
oh, you want to advertise in Batman? Well, that'll be a $10,000 uh, cost uh, if you want to advertise in our Batman comic. And maybe that's true. I know that I spent less than $500 a few years ago to be in a full page ad on the inside back cover of a comic. No, on the back cover of a comic book. For major spoilers. So, and for as much as that was circulated and the number of people that saw that, that was totally worth it to do less than $500 for that full page ad. So I think mm. that it could be there. I don't know. I mean, if you look at it, you're, you're looking at an audience of, at, the, at a maximum, 200, 250,000 people. Maybe. I don't know. All it doesn't know seem like the best I, way to I spend your if, money. I bet if you were to ask the comic book reader, hey, would you mind 25% of your comic book being ads if it meant the price of the comic dropped by two bucks? And I would bet they would say, hey, no problem. And then when you've got a popular property like Batman or a Superman or a Wolverine or an X-Man, uh, then you could say, hey, um, you know, we're selling 200,000 copies of this advertising here. I mean, we have less than 200,000 people listening to our podcasts each week and we get advertisers. Yeah, but we don't get Got Milk. Uh, we could have if Got Milk was still a thing. And also, <laughs> I, I have a, there's a line that I will draw when it comes to ads that we run on our podcasts. Uh, we could be we could be swimming. You, dear listener, could be swimming in ads right now. If you wanted to hear about penis pills and uh, hangover drugs and the benefits of CBD oil and all of that stuff, you'd be swimming in ads right now. But, but you know, that purple mattress that I bought, Stephen. Oh, yeah, we would definitely have a lot of that stuff, too. But I'm just like, you know, I'm not doing we're not doing some of those predatory things. We're not selling supplements like some people do on their podcasts. And those people that sell the supplement ads that sell the herbal teas and the CBDs and the and the, the blue pill kind of stuff, they make a lot of bank with that. So much so that, you know, they get bought up by companies like Spotify. So I think that I think advertising can still work in comic books. And I would be totally for it if they were used to bring the cost down and not just add an additional revenue stream to the comic book. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 231. A Day in the Death of a World. Published September 1977. Written by Paul Levitz with art by James Sherman. Synopsis. Karate Kid returns from the past, just in time for a son to go Nova. What's going on in uh, Superboy and the Legion of uh, Superheroes 231? I forgot uh, this came out in June of 77. That I is am, correct. I am now age six and a half at this point. Uh, so am I. But... I'll tell you the thing that happens in Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 231, that is monumental, meaningful, and holy moly. It's a harbinger of things to come, Stephen. Harbinger, you say? A harbinger. Not that harbinger. Oh, then I don't care. Different. It's a different harbinger. It's also not that Holly Hunter. No, this is only the second time since 1958 that the words Legion of Superheroes have appeared in the official Indicia title of a comic book. Because even though this book has been Superboy featuring the Legion and Superboy and the Legion on the cover, this comic has, until issue 231, still been officially, for DC's mailing and legal purposes, Superboy. 
Mm, interesting. And even though there was that four-issue Legion miniseries that we didn't cover back in 73, I think we talked about skipping it, that was just the reprints of the Legion's origins. Mm-hmm. That was the first book to ever have Legion of Superheroes in the title. This is the point where the Legion officially co-ops part of Superboy's book and will eventually, spoilers, co-opt the entirety of Superboy's book and throw Superboy out of the comic that was his since 1949. Mm, interesting. So in this issue, though, we mm-hmm. see the Fatal Five return. The Fatal Five. And they're going to blow up an entire planet. They are. They're holding a planet hostage Which, until they get what they want. This is like a super, super, super evil plan. Because the whole plot behind this is that they're not going to stop this this sun from going supernova no matter what. They're going to right. set off a, uh, who is it, um, uh, Thayrock Johnson, mm-hmm. wants to set off a nuclear explosion in the sun to make it go supernova. All the people, the Mordenites, the Mordenillinians or whatever that they're called, <laughs> over a million of them. In this explosion, they will be turned into Energite, which is money. So they're going yep. to blow up an entire planet, potentially kill millions of people, not because they're blackmailing anyone for money, because they want these people to be turned into a commodity that can make them ultra rich. And that, yep. honestly, is the most evil plan i have ever heard of forget about eradicating you know people just because you don't like them this is effing evil it is truly heinous and the really really obnoxious part of it all is the fact that as the issue starts not only are they holding the whole planet hostage they've stolen a couple of legionnaires to try and use that as leverage to keep the legion from getting involved Who, who could that be Who could that be? Well, I'll give you a hint. The first half of this episode was one of their books featuring the other one of them. Well, actually, the previous issue we just covered featured both of them, Princess Projectra and Karate Kid. And she can't keep her hands off of him as he glides through space, which is probably why the ship is going uh, weaving in and out through traffic, uh, because Mm -hmm. she's just all over him in this in this first panel that we see them together. Yep. They have returned to the future as we will see in the next issue of Karate Kid, but this has to fall in between issue 9 and issue 10, chronologically speaking, for the story to make any sense. Mm -hmm. So, Karate Kid, Princess Projector, who, by the way, looks really, really, really good under the pencils of uh, James Sherman. And I'm not saying like, oh, she's half naked or anything, just a beautiful, beautiful girl. She looks kind of like Ginger from, you know, Gilligan's Island. Yeah. But, yeah, she and Karate Kid are taken. Uh, Colossal Boy has his sleeves back, so nobody knows who he is. There's another interesting thing that happens in here that I was, that kind of surprised me when I first read it, Mm -hmm. is when they are abducted, there is a giant ship, like a big mile-long ship, Mm -hmm. that is tractor-beaming them into the undercarriage of the giant ship. And the only thing I could think of is, wow, they've stopped borrowing from Star Trek And they're going full on Star Wars in this issue. Now, Star Wars came out May 25th, 1977. I'm sure there were trailers and stuff that were out there. I'm pretty sure the first trailer included that opening shot from Star Wars where the um, the runner is trying to escape the Imperial cruiser. And I can't help but wonder if this didn't inspire that art. Now, again, it's a month apart, so you're not actually having 
this comic being put into production after the release of Star Wars, right. but trailers are out a couple of months before that. So I can definitely see some inspiration being drawn into this comic. Yep. I mean, this book was on the streets in July of 77. So approximately 30 to 45 days ahead of time. It's definitely possible. Yeah. So everybody's captured the Legion members. They don't know that the um, planet is essentially being held hostage or what's going on. So they are helping on the planet, uh, everyone into their Jupiter twos so that they can escape off world <laughs> and go to a new location. And in the meantime, uh, even Superboy and uh, the rest, Monel and the rest are trying to craft new uh, rescue arcs, I guess is what they're called. And then we discover the evil plan and how the fatal five are involved in all of these. And man, again, all I can say is this is evil, evil, evil from the top down. Every single one of them, every single one member of the fatal five are on board for this plan because it knows that they are going to have such incredible wealth that it will allow them to do anything. And Levitz is really starting to fire on more cylinders because there's a lot of legionnaires in this issue Mm -hmm. and they're, I mean, they're splitting up in ways that make sense. Brainiac 5 and Element Lad are trying to figure out how to analyze the sun and keep the reaction from blowing up, which makes perfect sense. you got the brain guy and the guy who can literally turn elements into other things. You've got Superboy doing some heavy lifting. You've got you know your Saturn Girl and Shadow Lass trying to evacuate people. Mm-hmm. Colossal Boy is on hand to punch out Validus, who, by the way, looks huge. Validus is enormous in this issue. Yeah. I, I could have sworn Validus was like 15 feet tall, but in here he's easily 60. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and uh, Colossal Boy is able to match his size. Maybe not his strength, mm-hmm. but definitely matches his size. Also, the art when um, when Element Lad and uh, Brainiac are in space. Mm-hmm. Element Lad is totally hippie dude. <laughs> and Brainiac 5 is totally Grandpa, Grandpa Jones uh, in this. <laughs> Uh, which is well, interesting because when I look at this particular page where they're fighting the Emerald Empress in space, I can totally start to see some of the cartoony stylings that the Moyes would use later in their run of the Legion uh, with the with the new volume of the Legion when it gets launched in the uh, in the 80s and 90s or early 90s. Yeah. And that is another thing that Sherman, who does the first half of this issue, does really well. His his Emerald Empress is terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At one point, she's doing the evil Empress laugh, and mm-hmm. she's <laughs> and it's just, I mean, you can see that this woman wants to kill them. You, you can she see where... She wants to murder Sunboy. She wants to murder Element Lad. Yes, and if you can uh, see where the Moys get their inspiration in this page, you also see where Greg Land gets his inspiration in this page. You, yeah, yeah, that's something different. It, it totally looks like a trace. It it could be, or, you know, a, definitely a photo reference, but it is really, really strong. Looks a little like Karen Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Well, even and when, um, uh, what's his name with the axe? Uh, but the Battle Persuader. Axe, your Persuader, when he takes off his helmet. Man, it totally looks like first-gen Iron Man and Tony Stark underneath. <laughs> it could be. I mean, they are facial hair bros. Yeah. And armor bros as well. You know, while... Uh, Shadow Lass and Saturn Girl are off rescuing uh, children who have been left behind and abandoned, which again, holy crap, you put that into a comic is just like the parents cared more about themselves than their kids as they tried to desperately flee. That undertone, even if it's just in two panels, is super disturbing. 
But maybe at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, maybe if Saturn Girl wasn't paying so much attention to these kids and more attention to her own son, Validus wouldn't be so angry and punchy in this issue. <sighs> she doesn't know that yet. We're still a good seven years from that revelation. I'm just saying. I am too. I'm maybe, with you. maybe with her psychic connection, she would go, there's some familiar connection that I have with this Validus character. Why each time is he around? Do I have this sudden urge to mother him and comfort him? <laughs> and aside from that, even the power of Superboy. Yeah. Superboy, who is young Superman, is insufficient to take down the Fatal Five, leading to a cliffhanger, which, interestingly, would have been the end of issue 231 were it not for something else important that happens in this issue. What's the other thing that happens in this issue? This issue is the point where, as per a lot of books in the mid-70s from DC, Legion went to giant size. Mm -hmm. So this is a 60-cent comic, which essentially contains what was prepared as 231 and 232, which is why at the end of 231, you see that last page with Validus attacking Superboy, or actually you see the last page and then you see Validus attacking Superboy. Mm -hmm. That's where Michael Netzer takes over. Oh yeah. Sherman did two. the first issue. Netzer yeah. did the second. So both of these chapters were essentially prepared according to the uh, lot jobs from DC as issue 231 and 232. So the decision to go giant size was made after the books were already commissioned. And even though it does seem like the Fatal Five are going to be able to take down everyone, uh, Legion, don't give up. Uh, Karate Kid does his Karate Kid action. Projector does her thing. You've got, uh, you know, Superboy and Monel cracking and thacking and thumping and kazapping. Yep. You see the beginnings of the Ultra Boy Monel friendship uh, that becomes one of the cornerstones of Levitz's later Legion work. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've always been friendly, but in this issue, you keep seeing them hanging out together. And you kind of think that these two guys probably go out and have wings. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they hang out socially. Yeah. And I really like that. So even though they are able to get everyone off the planet, there's no way they're stopping the star from going supernova. And uh, they're able to escape in their Star Trek ship uh, bef as it's exploding. And then we have this weird panel where Superman's wearing his cape like some weird robe thing. Like he's some messiah <laughs> giving some lesson that we must all learn. It's a really weird panel, and I'm not under sure I understand why he's drawn that way as opposed to his cape flapping majestically in, you know, a artificial environment. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's cold from being out in space and he's wrapping himself. I, I really don't understand why he's drawn that way. We usually do not see his cape worn like a cloak. I think it's kind of neat, honestly. I, I don't know what the the artistic impetus behind it was, but it's a moment where you're just like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, there seems to be a lot more cape there than usual. You are correct. I wonder if he overstretched it. Maybe. In his super stretchy cape stretching. I don't know. It's just, it's just really weird. Yeah. But, you know, it's also a neat moment to allow him to give the sum up and explain how, if it weren't for these meddling kids, Therok would have gotten away with it all, mm -hmm. which is kind of neat. They use Sunboy's power and Shadow Lass's power to fake an explosion, yep. to fake a, a sun-going supernova, yep. and to fake out the Fatal Five and send them to jail. Well, do sort they? Of. Because I thought that they, didn't they escape? 
Okay, send them to escape. Yeah, they do get away. And they well, always the, get away. Yeah, the Fatal Five. I mean, and I'm glad that this is a double sized issue because when the Fatal Five are around, you know you are in for interesting times. And this is a perfect story for that, where you have the giant fake out, you have the that's no moon uh, kind of a moment, you have, you know, this wicked, vile plot to eradicate people just to make money off of them, uh, mm. which is just. Oh, my gosh. It's this is probably the most evil. There's one exception. This is probably the second most evil plan I've ever seen in a DC comic. The What's the most evil plan? The first most evil plan is in 52, where Lex Luthor gives people superpowers. And, and lets them all die. And then when at the height of when he's about to be caught. People are flying through the air. They're using their powers and everything. And he simply flips a switch and turns their powers off and they plummet from the sky and die. That is the most wicked because here he gives he's given people hope and people are like, well, that Lex isn't as bad as he as as everyone says he is. Let me go and use my superpowers up, up and away. And then they plummet to their death. So he, he instantly takes away hope. That is the most wicked. This one here is, it just looks like it's going to be a supernova and we've got to evacuate the planet. But then you realize, oh no, this is where we're going to turn these people into Energenite or whatever it is. And they're worth a lot of money that way. And then you're going, oh man, that is, that is wicked and cruel. So, yeah. and then the third most wicked thing in DC Comics are the evil parents who left their children behind as the, the planet and the system is about to blow up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know that time that the anti-monitor destroyed literally billions of people in multiple universes yeah but I that's can see not that's not even a top five no it's I mean. it really isn't i mean it's it's just you know it's a it's wicked but i would not say that that is the most evil does it feel to you like this story is missing something near the end because I've read it a couple, three times now, and I just I feel like I miss a page somewhere along the line, or it, maybe something wasn't clarified for me. Because honestly, when you said, "Didn't the Fatal Five get away?" I'm like, "Did they?" Well, and the only reason why you make that assumption is because Superboy is like, "Hey, they were they will now have to learn what it means, and they're going to pay this terrible price." And right. so it kind of gives this uh, setup, kind of like we saw previously. Of, oh, they killed our friend. Oh, just you wait. We're now going on the rampage. Uh, so that's why it kind of feels that way. But I don't I don't know if this feels like it's missing something. Mm -hmm. uh, I can like most. Really great storytellers. Oftentimes their endings are super, super weak. Stephen King is a perfect example of this. Able to weave such a wonderful story, get you drawn in, tell you about all these things that are going on. And then he craps on the ending every single time. And I think Paul Levitz is a very talented writer, but maybe he's just, I wanted to tell more, but this is only this many pages long. So I have to take out a page or a panel or, you know, three other things that would make this feel more well-rounded just because of, of space considerations. Could be. Yeah. So what'd you think of this one? I enjoyed this issue. I feel like this is a really solid one. There are a lot of moments in here where I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's neat. Brainiac makes an educated guess. Mm -hmm. That is one of those moments where you're just like, wow, 
that kind of underlines how ridiculously dangerous and out of their element this whole situation is. But it works out for the end. You know, I really appreciate the fact that we have 11 Legionnaires in play. Yep. Nobody feels like they get really short shrifted. Well, except for, you know, the others that didn't get to appear in this issue. Well, there's 24 Legionnaires right now. Getting 11 in is remarkable. Getting 11 in and having everybody seem like they're doing something that mm -hmm. means something. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. That is really kind of awesome. Yeah. And that wraps up this installment of the Legion Clubhouse. Thank you so much for everyone checking out this show consistently week after week. And uh, we would like to keep doing this far into the future. So if you would, just take a moment, go check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash major spoilers. And uh, maybe you can help us out right now. If you can, that would be great uh, because we use all of your Patreon money and it goes right back into everything that we do. So that's something that you, our dear listener, has learned this week. Matthew, what did we learn this week? We learned that at this point in the story, they don't know where Dawnstar is from, so they just identify her as from Earth. Uh, we also learned that the Fatal Five are just evil, pure and simple from the Eighth Dimension. And we learned that somehow in the 70s, Karate Kid learned about whittling, probably from Jed Clampett. Thank you so much for checking us out this week. We will be back again in the future. So until next time, I'm Can You Dig It Man. And I'm Jive Turkey Kid. The Legion Clubhouse is a production of Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC, and is produced by Steven Schleicher. Your hosts were Matthew Peterson and Steven Schleicher. You can follow Matthew at Mighty King Cobra and Steven at Major Spoilers. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Legion Clubhouse. If you have questions or comments, send them to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. I'm Jason Inman. Until next time, eat it, Grandpa. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.